turn once again to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read the first 16 verses. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. Perhaps as a lead-in to this, since I'm going to reference it anyway, we might as well read it together. If you can go to chapter 2, verse 20, we'll read those three verses there at the end. Chapter 2, verse 20, we read that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now let's jump ahead to chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. <coughs> now, our text this evening is verses 11 through 13. I'll read that again. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The opening word of this text, beloved people of God, that word and, indicates that there is a connection, indeed a close connection, between our text and what precedes it. And that connection is this, that the Apostle is giving an example here of what he taught earlier. He is in the first place giving an example of the gifts that he mentions. The ascended Christ gives to the church. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And in verse 7 we read, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Notice the word give. He now gives an example of those gifts given by Christ. The gift of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Number two, he's giving an example of the diversity of these gifts. We noticed last time that there is really one gift, a gift of grace, but it comes according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That is, it comes in varying forms. It comes in varying quantities. In various times and places, there is a diversity of gifts. We all are given And every church is given that one gift, but in a diverse way. He's giving an example of that. He doesn't give everyone apostles. He doesn't give every church apostles and prophets. But he gives apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So it's an example of that. Also, he's giving an example of the nature of that gift as grace. Notice these are men. They're given work to do. But that work comes from Christ. The purpose of their work comes from Christ. They are given by Christ. He's showing once again the nature of the grace by which we are saved. Grace does not exclude men or the labors of men or Christ's use of men. If this is an example of the gifts of grace, you are given grace according to the measure of Christ, then we can learn something about grace and the dispensation of grace even through men by Christ. Also, with regard to our text, the very fact that the next verse, 14, that we're not considering, begins with the word (coughs) that, indicates there's also a connection between our text and what follows. One could even consider all these verses together, so closely are they connected. 
but we're going to divide them because there's important concepts and ideas found in these verses, in this whole section from verses 11 through 16. So there will be some things that we will defer saying, some things we will leave till next time, but we notice the connection first of all. And the connection is that the Apostle is explaining more specifically how it is that the church grows and what it grows unto. In the passage that we read and a few other verses throughout the book of Ephesians that we have considered thus far, you know that the Apostle has likened the church to the body of Jesus Christ, a living thing. And living things grow. Even when the Apostle refers to it as a temple or a building, he made clear that this is a building that must grow. It's built up. It has a foundation. And along that foundation is laid course after course after course. He even uses words that you would not expect to be used with regard to a building. He says the building is fitly framed and grows together. And we might ask, well, how is that? Well, he's explained that in part, but now he returns back to it and explains further how this works. It has to do with the gift of apostles and prophets and evangelists and prophets and teachers. And that's evident when you not only read in our text that this concerns the perfecting of the saints and the edifying of the body of Christ, but from the description of that growth in verses 14 through 16. So consider with me this evening this particular passage from the Word of God under the main idea, Christ-given ministers of the Word. Christ-given ministers of the Word. And we're going to notice in the first place the gift, then the work, and then finally the goal or the purpose. First of all, the gift. I said in the introduction that the Apostle here is explaining further the gift and gifts that he mentioned in the previous Verses, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. When he ascended into heaven, he gave gifts unto men. And then you have this parenthetical comment where the apostle comments on the reality that if Jesus ascended, that means he first descended and he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now he returns back to it. And when he says, and he gave, the idea is, this is now an example of those gifts that I mentioned earlier that Christ gives to the church. Now specifically, what that gift is, is a single gift, even as he previously used the singular but it comes in a diversity of manifestations. And if you look at that simply as a single gift, you may say it is the gift to the church 
of certain men who hold certain offices. The apostle is not saying that these are the only gifts that Christ gives to the church. He's not saying that there aren't other offices or other needs of the church. He's simply giving an example of the gifts that Christ gives to the church. And at the same time, the very fact that the apostle mentions these ought to indicate to us how important these gifts are, or this gift is, above all other gifts. The gift, as I said, may be considered in the singular. It is a single gift of men who hold particular offices, and particular men who hold particular offices. The first two offices that the apostle mentions are what we call temporary offices. There were, at the time of the apostle Paul, as is evident from a number of scriptures, both temporary offices and temporary gifts. The explanation for the temporary nature of them is that God gave those gifts and those offices in order to prove or demonstrate the new revelation for the New Testament church, that which we call the New Testament scriptures that would be given through and by these men, particularly now the first office that's mentioned, the apostles. That office no longer exists. It no longer can exist in the church. Churches that claim to have apostles have no apostles because the great qualification of that office was that they must be eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection and ascension. And that was true even of the Apostle Paul, who was added to the other apostles whom Jesus called personally. Their work especially was to establish the foundation, the foundation upon which the New Testament is built that was found in the passage that we read. We are built upon the foundation. And notice, he mentions those two offices, apostles and prophets. Not just simply apostles, but also prophets. Prophets, their work and their particular office was to reveal the will of God concerning the future. That was a special gift that God gave to certain men, such as Agabus, during the time of the apostles, wherein they literally prophesied of coming events. The apostles, too, functioned as prophets. In other words, there were some apostles who were also prophets, but prophets who were not apostles. The apostle John was 
a prophet. The Apostle John is the one whom Christ used to give us the great, great prophecy of the New Testament we know as the book of Revelation. In that book, God reveals to us, even as He revealed to the Old Testament saints through prophets, the future, the future pertaining to the church and His own coming. So there are two distinct yet related offices that were temporary, yet they were gifts. And among the gifts that Christ gave to the church, they would die out with the apostles and the completion of the New Testament record, and particularly the writing of the book of Revelation. The next is sometimes considered a temporary office, but may also legitimately be considered an office that exists today as long as it's considered as one subsumed under the office of pastor for the work described with regard to this office is basically the same work that we assign to missionaries. To be an evangelist is simply someone who proclaims the good news. From that perspective, an ordinary pastor or minister is an evangelist because the word that the minister is called to bring is the gospel and the gospel is the good news and therefore he may legitimately be called an evangelist and yet we know that there are some men in the church who are not assigned a specific congregation a specific charge but are sent to a location, are sent to an area, and are sent to bring the gospel in particular, not now to an established church, to those who have been instituted into a congregation, but to those who are not. To bring the gospel to the unchurched, to the heathen, to the ungodly, and to the wicked. That is the other office that's mentioned here. Then there are pastors and teachers. And again, there's some disagreement over what the apostle means here. But I believe they are one office here. And that is supported by many. Some, such as John Kelvin, considered these to be two different offices. There are pastors, which we would associate with the common minister, such as myself, a man who is called to preach the Word and the Holy Gospel in established congregation. And then there's teachers, which he considered to be the equivalent of our professors. But there is a difference in the text that indicates that the apostle may be simply speaking of the same office from two different perspectives or two different aspects of their work. And that really is the position of the Protestant Reformed churches too. And that 
grammatical construct is that in the original, the apostle puts the word the or the definite article in front of every one of these offices. And the King James translates that as some. It understands what the apostle is getting at. Literally, you read that he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. And then you read, and gave the pastors and teachers. Notice the the is not there in front of teachers. And the King James translates that, and he gave some apostles. They get the idea that the apostle is giving an example, and he's saying, basically, that Christ gave this diversity of gifts. He gave some Apostles, and some were this and some were that, but when he gets to the last two, he combines them. But he wants to recognize that that particular office of pastor has two different aspects to it. There's a pastoral aspect, which is literally the word to shepherd, to shepherd sheep. The minister is a shepherd of sheep, and he's a teacher. His fundamental calling is to teach. Now what's interesting is that this mention of these two particular words is exactly why some believe that the apostle is actually talking here about elders and pastors. Because that word pastor, that word shepherd, is actually used in Scripture many times for elders. Something we need to be reminded of that there are many shepherds in this congregation. There are many pastors in this congregation. You have a whole row of them whose job is to pastor, to shepherd, to lead the people, to lead the sheep, to care for the sheep. And that's legitimate, even though we, and I would say wrongly, consider the minister to be the only pastor. That's not true, not scriptural. And then the idea is that when it comes to the office of teacher, that that applies especially to the minister, for that too is biblical. We call it the teaching office. The pastor should be seen as a teacher. And so there's something to that view. But either way, he's talking about either one office, either the office of elder... The minister is an elder, so he's talking about the office of elder, or he's talking about the office of pastor from two different perspectives. It doesn't really make much of a difference as long as we understand the words that he's using here and understand the main thrust that they are gifts to the church from our Lord Jesus Christ. Gracious gifts. Now, I want to make clear that these are gifts from Christ. That's important, but that is the he who is being talked about here. Notice the he here. He gave is the same he that ascended up on high. The same he that descended into the lower parts of the earth. The same he that distributes these gifts according to his measure. That's significant. Why is that significant? Because remember, throughout the book, the apostle has connected the church to Christ. 
It is not simply God's body or God's church. It's not somehow vaguely connected to God, but the union to God, the connection to God, and there is one, comes through Christ. And specifically, the church is always identified with Christ. It is the body of Christ. It is the temple of Christ. It is where He dwells. He is the builder of the church. He is the savior of the church. He is the husband of the church. And so, He would give the gift. And He gives the gift. And so that helps us understand the nature of this gift. Gift of grace, obviously unearned like anything the church receives from Christ or through Christ. And anything Christ dispenses would be grace because it comes on the basis of His atoning work. Remember the reference. Remember the context. The one who descended into the lower parts of the earth. How did He do that? Simply by being born? No, by dying and descending into hell. Then he ascended as Lord and King over the church. And this one now gives these gifts to the church in his grace, in his love, and in his mercy for the church. How does Christ give this gift? Well, elsewhere the Bible explains that. He gives them with regard to everything. It's not as if these men and these offices are partly the work of man and partly the work of God. That when a man is put into the office, say, of pastor, that he has a great deal to do with this, and then Christ takes over at a certain point, and then he installs him into the office. That's not a biblical idea. Even the Apostle Paul recognizes that at crucial points. And I mention him because he's one of the apostles, one of the temporary office holders, and he was one who lived very wickedly with regard to the church. He called himself the chief of sinners exactly because he persecuted and wrecked havoc in the church. But God was in control. Christ was in control Christ even asks Paul, why did you kick against the pricks? Why, why did you ignore? Why did you ignore the signs? Why did you not ignore me jabbing at you from heaven here? So, let's keep that in mind that Christ gives this gift by preparing a man from the womb, even as was the case with the prophets of old. Christ prepares a man from the womb. And no matter when that man is actually put into that office, he prepares them in their life for that work, somehow, some way. He is the one who gives them their own personal gifts to exercise in the office. He is the one who then also calls them, calls them externally, so that they... They feel in their own heart the Lord calling them to serve as ministers or teachers. And He's the one who calls them actually through a church. Christ doesn't call them directly, but He calls them through a church. Notice some things. They're all 
men here. And they're all offices that Christ used variously in the church. And then simply consider some examples of these men. Consider some examples throughout history of those who labored, and you will see the next point of the apostle, which is they are examples of both the unity and the diversity of the gifts of Christ. Notice, first of all, the unity. Or, let's consider the diversity. Notice simply that they're different gifts, different offices, different men. If you want to consider the diversity of the gifts, simply look at the men themselves. How much different was the prophet Isaiah from, say, the prophet Micah? The work of Malachi versus the work of Jeremiah. Look at the apostles. Look at the wide variety of work given to Peter versus the work given to Paul. Even look at the difference in how they wrote the Holy Scriptures under inspiration. You can see it. You can read it. They read. God worked all that through Jesus Christ. Vast, vast diversity. Look at the diversity of men that Christ has given to the church for the last 2,000 years. Look at the men that you even know. Don't expect them all to be the same. Don't expect them to labor all the same, to have all the same gifts, not even to have the same calling. Even in our churches, some labor in the pastoral ministry, some labor more specifically as teachers of students, preparing them for this calling. Others labor as missionaries. And as I said, you could legitimately look at this text as a reference even to elders and look at the difference in their labor, even with regard to the minister. And look at the men themselves. There's a warning here to not play favorites, to not pit one man against another, or to say, I approve of this man and accept this man, but not that man over there, or his labors, to despise one and accept the other. You can't do that if you recognize they're given by Christ. Christ knows what He's doing. Even when men have sinned greatly in office or men have made great mistakes, you do acknowledge that that has happened. That happened even with the apostles. There was a time that even Paul had to rebuke Peter, an apostle, an apostle. One whom God would write, use to write infallible scriptures, yet was fallible himself, and one who basically disqualified himself from holding office by denying the Lord himself. And look at the other great one, Paul. So we must remember this. The apostle is telling us this for a reason. And we must remember that God through Jesus Christ, gives us what we need, what He wants us to have at any particular time, including the men that hold office. <clears throat> but notice at the same time, they're unified. 
You have all these different offices, all given at different times, some temporary, some permanent, some even with regard to the same office but different aspects, teacher, pastor, and yet there's one task, and I think even the children here know what it is. What's the one thing that they all did? What's the one thing that unites them all? What's the one thing that all these offices were known for? And the answer is, they administered the Word of God. That's why the Apostle mentions it even for the work of the ministry. The ministry of the Word. These are all ministers of the Word. That is, they are servants of the Word. Reminder to ministers themselves. They are servants, and they are servants of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who calls them, who equips them. It is Jesus Christ whom they owe for their office. They serve Him. They work for Him. They labor under Him. But you can take even these offices and boil it all to one thing, even with regard to pastoring versus teaching. It's not like pastoring is an entirely different work and teaching is an entirely different work because they both operate by administering the Word. That too is a reminder. That's my calling. That's your elder's calling. And I dare say it's even the deacon's calling. For that word minister that's even used here in the passage is the word deacon. The word deacon, the word diaconate, means to serve, a servant, a servant of the word. A minister of the word is a servant of the word. And whether one is pastoring, that is comforting and feeding and helping the sheep, the way that's done is by administering the word. Whether one is teaching, what is one teaching? The Word. And anything really other than that doesn't belong. It shouldn't be there. Oh, I know. Again, look at the apostles and look at all the labor and work of the apostle. He even had an earthly job to support himself. But there should be no dispute that his one great task, as well as the one great task of a minister in our churches or on this pulpit, is to simply bring the Word of Jesus Christ. One last thing about this gift. If you understand it to be a gift and a gift of grace, then you should be astounded that we're given it. The very fact that Christ gives this gift, and it is the example that the Apostle gives of the gifts of grace, including the diversity as well as the unity of these gifts, ought to tell you how important this work is. How important these offices were, and with regard to the one permanent one, how important that office is. And we ought to be amazed, number one, that Christ would even give this work to men. Knowing what I know about men and knowing what you know about men, would you give this work to men? Would you entrust men to preach your word if you were Christ? I know, foolish question, but think about it. Christ, the ascended Lord and King, is going to care for his body. He's going to build his temple, care for his body. And how does he do it? 
Well, he does it himself, obviously. There should be no dispute about that. It's Christ who loves his body and cares for his body, who builds up and edifies his body, who does all this, but he chooses to do it through men. Ordinary men, sinful men, weak men, all kinds of different men. Deniers of himself, persecutors of his own church. We ought to be astounded, astounded that we have a single man among us who would preach the word. We should be astounded that Christ gave us even one apostle. And we ought to have a deep, deep esteem for this gift. We talk a lot about the gifts of Christ and all the wonderful things he does. Consider this one, which the Apostle brings to our attention tonight. And I pray, too, that the sermon tonight may impress perhaps on some young men here that Christ may be calling them, that perhaps Christ has called them from their mother's womb to enter into this service to do something more important than anything in all the world, You don't doubt that, do you? That if this is the gift of Christ to the church, and the church is the fullness of Christ, and you see what's coming ahead, that's what the church needs. That's what Christ gives to the church. And that ought to be something that every young man considers. There should be. No shortage of ministers. And perhaps the fact that there is, that's a condemnation not of Christ, but of ourselves. It's an indication of what we really think of pastors and teachers. It's an indication of what we think about the grace of Christ giving this. You know it and I know it. So young men, consider this. Consider it for Christ's sake. Consider it with great love and appreciation for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now the work. The work, as I said, is the ministration of the work. The ministration of the Word. But I want to, first of all, define the work. And I enter somewhat into the purpose or the goal. Which is the spiritual maturity of the church. If we could take what the Apostle is trying to say here and what follows and summarize it, what is it that he's talking about? It would be spiritual maturity. He's referring to how the church arrives at the spiritual maturity as a body or perhaps we might say as a building, the completion of the building. The perfection of the building. That's what he's really talking about here. We're going to see, and we ought to consider even now briefly, that it's not always easy to determine, well, what's spiritual maturity? That's not easy to determine even from a physical viewpoint. When are we physically mature? And we can take certain things and we can look at them and say, well, is it when you arrive at this level of intellect or this certain height or this certain ability with your 
body to do things? Is that spiritually mature? And then about the time we think that that's spiritually mature, we forget that even as what we call adults, there's growth. There's growth sometimes even in the body or in the intellect. So it's going to be something that the Lord is going to define for us. But keep in mind that that's what this work concerns. Spiritual maturity now, not physical maturity, spiritual maturity. And also keep in mind, I hope you can see that as you're going through this book, there's times when the apostle is talking about the whole church. He, he's looking at an individual congregation. He's talking to a congregation. And then you listen, he talks about the unity of the church, and you realize he's talking about a church universal. He's, he's talking about such things as a, a group of churches, a denomination, not now as a church, but broadly churches, or the church through the ages, because it's always one church. And then there's times when he is talking right to the individual members. He references the members. He talks about the members. And keep in mind, that's what he's talking about here. What he says about the church and spiritual maturity and the work of the ministers isn't simply about the church. It's about the members. Keep that in mind. When we think about the work of the ministry and we think about the work of the servant of God bringing the Word of God, we may neither be selfish we should consider that the minister is here to serve the church, the whole church. And the minister must consider that his work. He mustn't simply minister to those his favorites or those he considers his friends or those who are nice to him, but the whole church he brings the word to. At the same time, it's also an individual word, isn't it? Sometimes that word comes from house to house. Sometimes even the Spirit applies it very directly, even when it's spoken generally. So keep in mind that he's talking about also the spiritual maturity of individuals, and it has to do with this work, this work that the Apostle is explaining. This gift that Christ gives is a work that tends to, leads to, works the spiritual maturity of the church. There should be no doubt about that. Simply look at the words that he uses. Notice, he gave these offices for, for what? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice, perfecting and edifying are ongoing actions. And that shouldn't be too hard to realize what he's talking about when you think again in terms of a building and a body. A body needs to be edified. It needs to be edified to grow. And we may speak of growth as edifying. They're, they're almost interchangeable. It has to be sustained. It has to be kept up. Same thing with the idea of perfecting. The idea of perfecting in Scripture has to do with the end or the goal. The completion. So that tells us something about this work. On the one hand, on the one hand, you may look at the church as a real true entity, a wholeness, a completeness, a unity, all in and of itself. Simply look what he's talking about. He talks about the perfecting of the saints. Well, we're saints. It's not the perfecting of ungodly people, it's perfecting of the saints. So we're saints. The church is saints. These men labor among saints, and yet they need to be perfected. 
Take note of that. Perfecting of saints. Notice edifying of the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And, and yet, the Scriptures don't allow us to simply say, well, since it's the body of Christ, there's no need for edifying. There's no need for being built up. There's no need for it to grow. Oh, no, 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 no. Then you don't understand what the church is. You don't understand how the church operates. You don't understand what Christ has in store and what He's doing. He's saying, I'm giving these offices because even though it's the body, especially because it's my body, it must be edified. It must grow. It must develop. It must go from here to there, which is why in the following verses He's going to talk about the perfect man, the whole body growing up into Christ, its head. That's the work of the minister. That's why he's given. And notice now, his work is to bring the Word. But the purpose of the Word is to edify and cause the church to grow. Now about that, there's a lot that could be said here. But on the one hand, let's take notice that it has to do with sanctification. It has to do with the perfecting of the saints. It has to do with the perfecting of those who are justified in the blood of Jesus Christ, whose sins are forgiven, who are righteous before God, who are holy so that they are called saints and yet must be perfected. They must be brought to an end, to a goal that God has in store. And if you object or doubt that, simply look at yourself. What do you see? And the answer is sin. That sin must be eradicated. It must be taken away. With regard to the church, is the church complete? No. There's members that have to be added. And then when they're added, they're saints. And yet, have to be perfected. Have to be brought to the heavenly glory. It has to do with what the Scriptures call our glorification. Our glorification. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He also glorified, says Paul in the book of Romans. Notice also, it has to do with strengthening. It acknowledges a certain weakness. It acknowledges, even though this is a body, there is something that needs to be lifted up and strengthened all the time. And thirdly, notice also this, that it has to do with ministry. In fact, that verse 12 can be taken this way, that their work is for the perfecting of the saints. And the idea is so that the saints are taught how to minister. It's not like there's three different works here for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying. Those are three different things. But the idea is the perfecting of the saints so that they labor as ministers. There's a, an amazing thing that the apostle brings up here. And it has to do with how the church really grows and edifies and is united. How it grows up. How does it do that? When the ministers of the Word, who are servants of Christ and who administer that Word teach the people to be servants themselves. Did you notice the numbers that we sang? How many referenced you and me as servants? And it's not simply that we're servants of Christ, but as servants of Christ, we serve one another. We are all in the ministry. We are all deacons. We are all those who serve for the needs, 
who work for the advantage and salvation of others. There is no place for the selfish Christian. And keep in mind now, that's really what sanctification is. It's to be dedicated to the service of God and therefore the service of one's neighbor, and especially now in the church. That's the work of the ministry, to teach that, to bring that word, to communicate that to the people of God. It's not simply to say your sins are forgiven, but this is your calling. This is your work. This is who you are. This is what God has in store for you. And the goal, therefore, as I indicated, is the spiritual maturity of the church. I'm going to simply put it in terms now of the apostle. He puts it this way. Till we're brought unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When now is the church finally really spiritually mature? When is it perfected? When are the saints perfected? When is the church completely edified as the body of Christ? And the answer is, according to verse 3, three things. Till we come in the unity of the faith. Till there's a unity of the faith that you can't see today. Till there is a oneness in doctrine, a oneness in truth. That's what is the work of the ministry. That's what it means to be spiritually mature. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Talking there about a loving knowledge. Growth in the love of the Son of God and the knowledge of the Son of God that is at a level of perfection that we don't have now until he calls it a perfect man and then the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There you have it. What does he mean? Well, you know, when we look at spiritual maturity in our life, what do we do? We look for a standard. Maybe it's a dad. And we say, son, when you're like that, then you're mature. When you look like your dad and you act like your dad, when you're his height and you have his strength and his understanding, now you're a man. It's no particular age. It's no particular standard as such, but simply look. And that's the idea here. When is the church spiritually mature? When is it brought to this level of perfection? When is it edified to this extent? When is it done, as it were? When do we have the perfect man, the completed church? And the answer is when it resembles Christ, when it's like Christ, when it behaves like Christ, thinks like Christ, acts like Christ, when it's completely and fully joined to Christ in that unity of the faith, in love, living in love with Christ as its head and as its husband. That is the work of the ministry. And that is the gift of Christ to the church. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank Thee for the great gift of the gospel ministry for ministers of the word who teach us how to minister, to love thee, to serve thee, to follow after thee. And we pray for this perfection of the church, for this perfecting of the saints, for this edifying of the body till we arrive at a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We pray, O Lord, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.